All right, good. Hey, how's everybody doing? Happy Sunday. Welcome to church. Um, today, you heard Pastor Joel is out there. Uh, get him and his wife Haley are getting back from uh, vacation. So pray for their travels as they get back. And uh, you guys are stuck with me today. Um, and we are going to be wrapping up the book of 2 Timothy today. And um, it's exciting. Uh, number one, because the Word of God is awesome, and there are some cool things to be learned uh, in this last portion of 2 Timothy, but we are also starting a new series, which I'm not going to tell you just yet what it is, uh, but we're going to be starting a new Bible series on uh, next Sunday when we start with the whole new service times that you guys heard about. Um, so today we are going to be in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 22, okay? So open up your Bibles there if you're not already there, and we're going to be looking at a message entitled, Paul's Final Farewell. Paul's Final Farewell. <clears throat> cool. And so, we're finishing up 2 Timothy, and Pastor Joel, he's been teaching you guys bit by bit, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and here we are today, we're bringing it home, and we're actually today going to be looking at Paul's final words uh, before his death, actually. This is, this is the last recorded portion of Scripture, um, and we know that 2 Timothy was the last, uh, was the last book, essentially, that Paul wrote uh, before he died. And so, if you knew you were going to die, you would probably want to leave some sort of message behind, right? You would want to communicate something, maybe to your family, maybe to your friends, um, I'm a funny guy, or I like to think I'm a funny guy. When I say funny guy, I mean, I can be sarcastic. I like telling jokes. I like laughing and stuff. So um, I, I would maybe want to leave something kind of humorous behind uh, for, for those who would read my message. And uh, I was looking into it, and I'm not the only one like this. Um, you guys know what a headstone is? You know, like where you go to a cemetery and you have those, those headstones on people's graves. And sometimes there will be something like, here lies, I'll just use myself as an example, Tate Cox, and it will have the lifespan essentially like 1994 to 2021. Uh, I hope I live longer than 2021, but hey, uh, who knows? But nonetheless, you guys, uh, these headstones, sometimes they have little messages on them. And I wanted to, these, uh, let me clarify, these are not real, but they're, they're jokes and that I thought were funny. I hope you think are funny too, but I don't know. I feel like they're kind of like dad jokes. So let's look at this first one. It says, here lies the inventor of autocorrect. May he restaurant in peace. <laughs> Do you guys know autocorrect, how you'll be, you'll be texting or whatever, and you'll type a word, and it just completely changes it to something that you did not mean? I feel like that would be a good headstone for the inventor of autocorrect. Let's look at another one. Here lies Mozart decomposing. Do you guys get it? Decomposing because he's dead, but composing because he was a composer. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was kind of like a dad joke, I feel like, which I'm not a dad, but I still like dad jokes. And then one more. This one is kind of more personal to me. Uh, when, when I pass away one day, uh, I always have said, go ahead and just put the angel score on my headstone. That way they can let me down just one last time. I'm just kidding. That's, that's a fake score. Well, maybe it's real, but uh, I'm an Angels fan. If you're an Angel, Angels fan, you know, you know the pain 
you know the struggle. Uh, you know that it can be, it's tough sometimes being an Angel fan. It's easy being a Dodger fan. They win a lot. But being, a, being an Angels fan, which congrats to you Dodger fans, they won last night. That was good. One and one. I said the Giants have a possibility of sweeping the Dodgers, but they didn't do it. So um, good luck to winning the rest of the games, though, I'll say that. But yeah, you guys, essentially why we've been talking about these headstones and these messages left behind is that's kind of what we're looking at today. We're looking at Paul's final message to Timothy. And uh, we know that, according to church tradition, that shortly after writing this, uh, Paul is actually killed for his faith. Uh, he's currently in prison while he's writing this letter to Timothy, and uh, these are his final words, like I was saying. So, you're open to 2 Timothy 4, yep? Yep. I like some participation. So, open to 2 Timothy 4, yep? Yeah. Thank you. All right, so let's take a look at it. Verse 9 is where we are starting. He writes to Timothy, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Damas has forsaken me having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is, use, he is useful to me for ministry. And this guy's name is kind of hard to say, but I think it's Tychicus. I don't know, Ty, Tychicus. We'll go with Tychicus for now. Um, he says, I have sent to Ephesus. And then he writes in verse 13, he says, Bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth. But Trophimus I have left in my Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. God, we come before you now. And Lord, we are, we are privileged to be holding a Bible in our hands. Lord, this is your word. This is your eternal word that you have written for our learning. And God, we pray that you would unravel your scripture today, Lord, that the hidden truths that are in your word, Lord, would just be made so clear. And God, that we would walk away from today, uh, Lord, with valuable life lessons, Lord, things that we're going to uh, walk out of this place and live out. So God, would you help us to do these things? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the, you guys are used to Pastor Joel teaching you a certain way. And I'm going to be honest, I usually teach the exact same way as Pastor Joel. But given the uniqueness of today's text, uh, we're going to be kind of looking at it a little bit differently. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, do, do any of you know the name Chuck Smith? Yeah. Chuck Smith is, he's essentially the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. You are sitting in a Calvary Chapel 
Um, he wasn't the direct founder of this church. That was Pastor Jack and his wife. Uh, it started with the home Bible study, but essentially Chuck Smith, uh, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, he taught the Bible a certain way, which is awesome. And that's kind of how we're going to be going through it today, which is we're simply going to be looking verse by verse, word by word, and we're going to be trying to understand what's going on. Because, I mean, in reading that, you're, you might be like, what is Paul even talking about? Who are these people? What is he saying? And so we're going to be looking at it like that, okay? So verse 9, remember, it says, be diligent to come to me quickly. And we're going to stop right there for a quick second. Uh, he, he says, be diligent to come to me quickly, Timothy, meaning he wants Timothy to get to him soon, as fast as he possibly could. Now, reminder, Paul, he's in prison, and this isn't Paul's first time in prison. Uh, Paul, he was in prison before, uh, but that imprisonment was a little bit different. Um, he was more so kind of on like house arrest, you could say, in his first imprisonment, where he was essentially like confined to a house, but he could have visitors come and visit him and like friends and stuff. So it was imprisonment, but it was a little bit different. This time he is like in the dungeon, essentially. Like he is like picture like an underground prison where like it's just him and like these rocky walls. It's dark. It's wet. He's chained up. Like it's just not good. He is going through it. And Paul, he wanted Timothy, his beloved son in the faith is what he referred to as Timothy in other portions of scripture. He wanted his friend, he wanted his beloved son in the friend to, uh, his son in the faith, excuse me, to come and comfort him. He needed Timothy in this time of his life. And he stresses to Timothy, hey, Timothy, get here quick because he knows that he will soon be dying, Paul, that is, he will soon be dying at the hands of Nero. You guys ever heard of Nero? Yeah, Nero was a bad, bad dude. Um, this guy was a Roman emperor, and he hated Christians. In, in, the Roman, in, in his reign as the Roman Empire, emperor, there were these fires that took place, right? And it's called the Great Fire of Rome. And essentially, these fires were so big and crazy that they burned like two-thirds of the whole Roman Empire. It was bad. And guess who Nero, gentlemen, something funny? Boys, let's pay attention, okay? Nero, he took that fire and he, guess who he blamed? He gamed the Christians. Blamed the Christians. My mouth is not working right now. He blamed the Christians. And so... He essentially got the whole Roman Empire to turn on uh, the Christians that were there. And he, he started essentially the worst persecution uh, that you could possibly even think of. Like he would, he would feed Christians to lions, like he'd just throw them in a lion's pit and watch them just rip up the Christians to shred. Uh, he would nail them to crosses, similar to how Jesus was nailed to the cross. And the worst that church history tells us is he would... He would like hang them from these poles and he would light them on fire and they would alive and they would act as like lights at his parties that he would have and they would just be burning there. And they, so it was, Nero was a bad dude. And this is, this is the guy that has Paul in prison right now. This is the guy that Paul knows he's going to be facing real soon. He doesn't know exactly when. Paul doesn't know like, hey, Timothy, it's happening tomorrow. You got to get here soon. He doesn't know when exactly it's happening, but it's going to happen soon. So Paul writes this knowing that that's going to happen to him. In verse 10, look at verse 10 with me. It says, For Damas has forsaken me, having loved 
this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Now, Paul here, uh, if you're in prison, you're going to have time to think about a lot of things, right? You're going to be thinking about people. You're going to be remembering uh, certain things. And right here, Paul remembers who left him. And Demas, um, he is actually the one guy out of these guys that uh, Paul makes sure to describe negatively. So Demas did not leave Paul on good terms. Let's say that. Um, he, it says he forsook Paul. He had forsaken him, meaning that he abandoned him. He left him helpless. That's what that word forsaken literally means. It means he left me hanging out to dry. Have you ever heard that before? Like you got left hanging out to dry? That's essentially uh, what Demas did to Paul. And it says that he did this because he loved this present world. Now, I know there's a lot of words and stuff on the screen. Let me clarify the notes today. Write down what you think is important. There's a lot of notes. Uh, I put a lot on the PowerPoint. You don't have to write it all. Uh, but there, there's two, essentially, there's two things that this phrase, love this present world, could have meant. And I'm going to share both of them with you, and then uh, we'll, we'll kind of talk about what it probably was versus what it could have been. So uh, the first one is what it could have been. It could have been that Demas, he fell into the sin of worldliness. Do you guys know uh, what I mean by when I say worldliness? You know how the world, uh, meaning those who do not know Jesus, they have a different life than you, right? They live differently. They live for certain things. Uh, they, they have certain things that uh, they're all about, whereas Christians, I mean, hopefully, our lives are looking a lot different than them. And it's possible that Demas, he did ministry uh, you know, with Paul for a good while, actually, he's, one, he's written about in other letters that Paul wrote, uh, but it is possible that he got caught up in the pleasures of this world and he ultimately stumbled into sin. And the Bible says regarding the world and the love of the world, it says in 1 John, it's on the screen, you could look to it right there and just make reference of the verse. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are strong words, first, uh, John writes in 1 John. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So I want you guys to listen to something really quick, and I'm very passionate about this, and you should be too, because it's what the Bible teaches. If you're a Christian, let's say person A is a Christian right here. Person B over here is not a Christian, and they're living in the world. Your life should look a lot different than this person's life. You get what I'm saying? It shouldn't be that like uh, an innocent bystander just looking on, looks at both of person A and person B, and it's like, oh, yeah, they look the same to me. They might physically share some characteristics. Maybe they both have a big nose or something. But I'm talking about the lifestyle. The lifestyle should look radically different. And if you're a Christian, your life should look a lot different than your friends who are not Christian. Now, it doesn't mean you can't play baseball with them. You can't uh, hang out with them. But your life is for Jesus, and it should look a lot different worldliness and being like Jesus, they literally don't mix. You can't have both. And the funny thing about being a Christian and the world 
is that they are contrary to one another. They both want all of you. The world wants your heart and wants 100% of your heart, but Jesus also wants your heart and 100% of your heart. Who are you going to give your heart to? And the Bible teaches us that the things that are in the world are not of God. It says that in 1 John. They're not of God. But those who are of God, Jesus says in John 17, that they are not of the world. You see the, the contrast between the two? You tracking with me on that? Yes? Come on, I need that participant. Yes? There we go. Good. So, like I said, if you're finding your life looks a lot more like a worldly life than it does a God-honoring Christ-like life, then you need to take that to the Lord and you need to turn away from the sins of this world and repent and uh, ask God to forgive you of that and he will help you change your lifestyle. But number two, this is probably, going back to Demas, this is probably more uh, along the lines of uh, why Demas forsook Paul, why he abandoned Paul. And that's because uh, Demas was probably simply just looking out for his own skin meaning he just wasn't ready to die. He knew Paul was going to die. Paul got arrested, and he's like, I'm not trying to get arrested too. I'm not ready to die. And he probably left Paul because of that. This is the more likely scenario. Um, it doesn't specifically say either or, but just knowing kind of, you know, where Demas was going, which he was going to Thessalonica, which there's a church there, um, it's not likely that Demas completely just abandoned his faith. Uh, but this is probably more likely that he was just scared for his own life and he got out of there. And you have Demas here, right? And you have Paul here. When persecution arose, Demas got out of there, but Paul, he stood boldly in the face of it. And when you think of it, even Jesus's disciples, right? They were, they were guilty of doing this as well, right? Do you guys know the story of Jesus in the garden uh, when he was arrested? You guys know what I'm talking about? And then the Bible actually says that all the disciples, once Jesus gets arrested, says they all forsook him and fled. They got out of there. They saw what was happening to Jesus and they're like, I'm out of here. And Peter even, remember what Peter did? Peter denied Jesus three times. And the, the good news is, is that, did, it, did the story stop there with Peter? Do we remember Peter as being only the guy who denied Jesus three times? No, God did an amazing work through Peter's life. You read the book of Acts, he's one of the pillars of the church. He did so much for the sake of the gospel, but yet him, along with the other disciples, like Demas, abandoned Paul, they abandoned Jesus. So whichever it was, whether Demas fell into the sin of worldliness or if he you know, just got out of there uh, because he didn't want to die like Paul, uh, it is clear that Demas didn't count the cost. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that phrase down, count the cost, because it's important. And I know your notes are looking different than they usually do, but like I said, we're teaching a little bit different today. But I want you to write that phrase, count the cost, because to be a Christian, you need to count the cost. And unfortunately, there is this watered-down gospel, not at this church, you won't find it at this church, but you might have friends who go to other churches who, when they go to church, they're, they're hearing this watered-down version of the gospel where being a Christian um, essentially is like, just make your life better 101. And that's not, that's not really the case. Now, Jesus gives us abundant life, he says, and we do have a better life, 
But does that life come with just everything going away, every trial, every tribulation? No, obviously not. In fact, one would argue that it actually, in terms of trials and suffering, it actually gets worse when you become a Christian. Because guess who hates you? Satan hates you. And he wants you to suffer. But God can use suffering. So the reason why we're talking about counting the cost is, like I said, whether Demas fell into worldliness or whether he just kind of got out of there to save his own skin, he didn't count the cost. So what does it mean to count the cost? Well, I think the best way uh, for us to define that is to actually look into the word of God in Luke chapter 9. Open up your Bibles there. I want you to actually turn there because we're looking at a handful of verses here. So Luke 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 26, and then verses 57 through 62. But we'll be in verse 23 first. Luke 9, 23. All right. Verse 23, Jesus says, he says, uh, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is, is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his father's and of the holy angels." And so here Jesus is uh, teaching us about what it means to come after him, what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, if we're going to follow him, we got to do a couple of things first. Number one, we got to deny ourselves. You got to recognize that when you live for Jesus, that's something that you got to do. You got to deny yourself. You give your life to Jesus. Have you ever heard that phrase, give your life to Jesus? Like, oh, a friend gets, comes to church and gets saved, right? They gave their life to Jesus. Guess what they literally did? They gave their life to Jesus. We don't just say that. And so to be a Christian is to give your life to Jesus. It's to deny yourself. Your life is now his. Number two, we need to take up our cross daily, which is identifying with the death that Jesus died and dying to ourselves, similar to denying ourselves, but a little bit differently. And finally, we need to follow him. When Jesus goes here, we go there. We are walking closely behind him. And jumping down to verse 57 in Luke 9, go ahead, if you have to turn the page or just look further down on the same page, verse 57, this is later on, it says in verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to this man, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow And looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so again, here in this portion of scripture, Jesus is uh, even further teaching us about what it means to count the costs. Now, 
This guy in the story, verse 57 through 62, this, this guy comes up to Jesus, right? They're all walking along a road and this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And essentially what Jesus tells this guy, this super excited and zealous guy is he says, dude, you're all excited about following me, but I don't even have a place to sleep tonight. That's the equivalent of what Jesus was saying. And so he's trying to get this guy to understand like, yeah, you want to follow me and you're all excited about that, but it's going to cost. Like, it's not this glamorous life. And then Jesus turns to a second man who's walking with him. And he tell, it's interesting because the first man comes to Jesus saying this. And then Jesus turns to this guy and says, you follow me. And this guy says, oh, but Lord, let me first go bury my father. I'll follow you, but let me first go bury my father. And Jesus, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. You're like, whoa, Jesus, relax, right? It sounds like that would be the, the response that you would have to him saying that. But in reality, this guy's dad wasn't dead. His dad wasn't even dying. Essentially, this guy is saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but my dad, he's, he's got some money that he's going to leave me behind when he dies one day. And, you know, it would be nice if I could follow you after that and I could get that money. And then, you know, after that point, I'm all yours, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes the man for that. And then this third man, this guy, this, this third man, I got to give him credit. I don't know how you approach Jesus after he just tells this guy, let the dead bury their own dead. But he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Lord, I'll follow you. Uh, but let me first go, go bid them farewell, those who are at my house. Right? And that sounds somewhat reasonable. But Jesus rebukes this man too. And he says uh, that no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, you guys know the story of Lot's wife when they were running from Sodom and Gomorrah, she turns back and looks at what she's leaving behind and she turns into a pillar of salt. And that's kind of like what we're talking about here is this guy was like, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. But he's like looking back at what he's leaving behind, right? And Jesus rebukes him for that. So as a Christian, we gotta recognize that following Jesus is costly. It's not gonna... I mean, it might cost you money at, at times if, you know, you work in a certain job for the Lord and you're just not making as much. That, I guess it's, it could, but it's not a cost in the sense of like financially, but it's more so it's going to cost you your life. But I can assure you, so as anyone who's been walking with Jesus for some time, that it is so worth it. It is so worth it to follow Jesus and to count the costs. Let's look at our next guy in verse 10, Cresens. If, if I'm saying that right, this is the only time this guy is actually mentioned in the Bible. And compared to, to Demas, uh, Paul doesn't really say anything negative about Cresens leaving. So it seems like Cresens, uh, he, he left on somewhat good terms. Uh, he, he was a fellow companion and minister with Paul. Um, and he ends up going to Galatia, uh, probably to, you guys know the book of Galatians? Yes? How that, Paul wrote that letter to the church in Galatia. That is likely where Crescens was heading to, was that church in Galatia to further minister to them and be there uh, for the church and help lead them. Now, Titus. You guys know Titus, yeah? If you turn one page over in 2 Timothy 4, you're in Titus. Um, so 2 Timothy 4 describes Titus. Paul is writing to Timothy. I always sometimes get Timothy and Titus mixed up in my mind. Uh, probably the, the T uh, is why, but... Uh, Titus was another younger guy, kind of like Timothy, uh, younger in age and also younger in the faith. Uh, but 
Paul loved Titus. Just like he loved Timothy, he loved Titus. And Titus was this Gentile guy that uh, got converted to Christianity. And Paul really invested himself into Titus, right? Paul kind of like took Titus under his wing, you could say. And uh, Paul invested his life. He discipled uh, Titus to be a minister of the gospel. And Titus, if you read Titus, it's in the beginning of Titus, it says that Paul left Titus in Crete. So Titus was given a job to do in the church in Crete. And he was essentially to help lead that church, even though he was a younger guy, uh, he was given that job of doing that, and he needed to help the church in the areas of like leadership, doctrine, good works. Those are all things that uh, come up in the book of Titus. But like Crescens, Titus, he moves on to Dalmatia, and it seems like Titus does this on, on good terms with Paul. Paul doesn't have anything bad to say about Titus compared to, to Demas, who had forsaken him. Verse 11. Now we're looking at who stayed with Paul. Well, there's only one guy, and who Paul wanted with him. We obviously know Paul wanted Timothy with him because he says in the beginning, be diligent to come uh, to me quickly, but he also wanted somebody else. So the first guy is who was with Paul at the time of writing this, and that's Luke. You guys know Luke? You guys know what Luke wrote? You guys are so smart. Yeah, he wrote Luke, and he also wrote the, the book of Acts. Um, so Luke was this awesome guy. The Bible says he was a physician, meaning he was a doctor, and he traveled with Paul a lot of places. Um, pretty much most of the places Paul went, uh, Luke was likely with him, and he was, he was a really close friend of Paul's. Um, and then let's look at Mark. Now, Mark is super interesting. Uh, he's also known as John Mark in the Bible, uh, but Mark is this interesting guy, not because Mark was, you know, I don't know, a weirdo, but um, previously in the book of Acts, Paul didn't like Mark. <laughs> and I'm, when I mean he didn't like Mark, like he essentially calls Mark out in the book of Acts. So the, in the book of Acts in chapter 15, you can write down the reference, 15 uh, verses 36 through 41, if you want to look at this story later, but I'm going to describe it to you. Uh, there's this argument that happens, right, between Paul and you guys know Barnabas. You heard that name before? There's this argument that happens between Paul and Barnabas, and you're like, wait, two godly Christian men are arguing? Yep, that happens too. And so these guys are arguing, and guess who they're arguing over? They're arguing over Mark. And so essentially, Paul and Barnabas are like, let's go and let's visit the churches that we've helped establish, and let's go see how they're doing. That's literally what it says. Let's go see how they're doing. And Paul's like, let's do it, Barnabas. I want to do this with you. And then Barnabas is like, good, but let's bring Mark. And Paul's like, nope, I'm not going anywhere with that dude. And you're like, wow, Paul, why? Um, apparently in the story, it tells us that Mark actually deserted them. Um, so he's kind of pulled the, pulled the Damus on him. Um, but at this point in time, when we're reading 2 Timothy, Paul's not talking about Mark like that anymore, is he? Paul's not saying like, that's the guy I didn't want to go with me on a missionary journey. Rather, he says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you. He's useful to me. And it's so odd because we don't read in scripture what happened in between, but there had to have been some sort of restoration, right? There had to have been some sort of restoration of Paul 
and Mark's relationship. Because why would Paul say, hey, get Mark and bring him with, bring him with you um, if Paul didn't actually want Mark to be there? And so what's cool about this, you guys, is that, yes, there was this contention. Yes, there was this argument. And Mark probably, probably felt really weird in the middle of all that. They're arguing over him. And he's just kind of standing there like, uh, I don't know what to do here. Uh, but now, apparently, there was this amazing restoration of their relationship that God had to have done. And as you guys continue, this is actually a really valuable lesson to learn because as you guys continue in your faith, as you continue walking with Jesus, which our prayer is that you walk with Jesus for the rest of your life, but as you continue to do so, guess what? You're going to have contentions with people. You're going to have arguments. You're going to have disagreements. And what you do with those disagreements really determines a lot. The Bible teaches us that we're to forgive people when they wrong us. Clearly, Paul was deeply hurt by what Mark did to him, right? But he forgives Mark. So when you have a dispute in your life, will you handle it biblically? Say in this room right now, You've even had a friend in here. I don't know if this is the case. I've only been here for a couple months. I don't know the drama going on, if there is. Hopefully not. Uh, but, thank you. Um, but basically, you guys, what I'm saying is if there's someone in this room that, like, something happened and you guys had this disagreement and you don't like each other anymore, the Bible says you need to make that right. And actually, it goes as far to say that if you have a broken relationship with someone, and you try and worship God, it's like God does this. Like you're standing here, you're trying to worship God, and he goes like this. He says, I'm not listening to that because your heart's not right. You have this damaged relationship with someone. And Paul must have recognized that clearly because he had this relationship with Mark restored. So to handle it biblically is to seek forgiveness, to be humble enough to go to the person and apologize if you're the one who's done wrong. And even if the other person has done wrong, Guys, there's been times in my life, I'm really good at this. I have a, a serious case of foot and mouth syndrome. You ever heard of that? That means I say things when I shouldn't say things. And sometimes I accidentally hurt people. And sometimes I don't even realize it. And so there might be someone who like, is like, oh, Tate said that against me and really hurt my feelings. And I have no idea. So you got to, like, if you're hurt by someone, you also have to be humble enough to go to that person and say, hey, you, you said this or you did this and it actually hurt me. Um, I just want to make you aware of that, like that, that it affected me like that. And I've had to have that conversation with someone before. And guess what happened? When two Christians who are seeking the Lord and are humble enough to admit when they're wrong, that relationship can be restored. Guess, guess who loses when you hold on to a grudge and when you hold on to bitterness? You do. You're the one who loses. Bitterness will take root in your heart and it will be all bad. But Paul was not willing to do that. He had a res restored relationship with Mark and it was awesome. And it's awesome to read how he wants Mark with him in this dire time of his life. Moving on to verse 12. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. We don't know too much about this guy other than that he was a fellow worker of Paul and that Paul commissioned him, essentially sent him. He said, Tychicus, I want you to go to Ephesus. And like Titus, or I'm sorry, uh, Crescens went to Galatia, probably to the church of Galatia. Um, Tychicus probably went to the church of the Ephesians to kind of help pour into them as well. But 
the, the takeaway from all these various guys going to these various places, you guys, is it's so awesome because God has called various men to various places for one purpose. And it's no different today. There's a, a hundred and maybe 50 of you in here today, maybe a little bit less, somewhere around that number, I'd say. And guess what? God has called you to a various place that he hasn't called the person next to you to. Now, sure, obviously you're sitting in the same building, but in terms of you have a different family, unless you have brother and sister in here, then that's a little different. But you have a different family. God has called you to your family. You might go to a different school. God has called you to that school. You might have different friends. God has called you to those friends. And just like these guys, God had called them to these various places. It was all for one purpose. And that was to show the love of Jesus and to glorify God with their lives. And that's the same for you. It's so awesome to me. You have people in your life that I can't reach. You realize that, right? I can't just go to a junior high and start hanging out with your friends and sharing the gospel with them. I'll get arrested. But you have those people in your life and you're to be that light for them. God has not called me to be the light for them. You to be the light for them. And I just think that's amazing. Verse 13, he says, Bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Now, this is kind of like the nitty-gritty stuff, like the little things that Paul's like, hey, bring this, bring that when you come. And so apparently, uh, Paul, when he was arrested, he had to leave behind his cloak, which is like a, a garment, essentially. is like this uh, big cloth, like had a circle. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this warm cloak type thing, I guess. Um, and his books. But Paul wasn't able to get those things when he was arrested. And so Paul's like, hey, I want those back. If you could bring those, please. And Paul, if you guys know anything about Paul, you guys, Paul was a genius. And he, he clearly loved to read, which is awesome. Um, I am still growing in my love for reading. Um, but as I, as I grow in the Lord more, I love reading more and more and more. So it's awesome. But Paul, he loved to read. And uh, he, when he says the parchments, those are actually handwritten copies of the Old Testament. He wanted the word of God with him at the time. It wasn't like now where we have a Bible on our phone and we carry a Bible here and we lend you guys Bibles when you come to church and we go there and we have a Bible. We go here, we have a Bible. It wasn't like that. Paul's in prison. He does not have a copy of the Bible with him. But guess what he wants? He says, hey, bring me the parchments. Bring me the copies of the Old Testament. Why? Because he knows that the word of God would comfort him. So let me ask you guys this. I want you to imagine this scenario in your head. Imagine you're like Paul, right? And you're in prison and you know that you are going to die. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, say, let's, let's say you're in prison and you know you have two days, right? Let's say you have two full days, 48 hours before uh, you're going to be on the chopping block. You're, you're going to be put to death. I want you to just think for a moment. If I said, okay, I'll allow you to have two things with you, two things only. This could be people. This could be items. This could be whatever. Just think to yourself, what would those two things be? Just think for a moment. All right, I am curious to hear a couple. Share one of your two things if you're willing to. Does anyone want to share what one thing? Luke? Oh, no. I knew this was going to happen. Breakfast burritos. Okay, you're going to eat them, and then 
You're going to poop them out and that, that'll be that. Yes? PS4. Okay, this is going downhill quick. Right here? Family. There we go. There's a, there's a good, genuine answer. You guys need to get your priorities right over there. Yes? Friends and the Bible. We're going to stop right there because guess what? That's exactly what Paul wanted with him too. Paul is about to die. And guess what he's requesting for? He's requesting for his friends, his brothers in the Lord, and he's requesting for the Bible. Well, at that time, the parchments, the Old Testament. But you guys, when we're in, let's reel back real quick. Look back up at me real fast. When we're in difficult circumstances, when you're going through a trial, when you're going through a really tough time, these are two non-negotiable things that you need. You need brothers and sisters in the Lord around you to help you. You can't do it on your own. And number two, you need the word of God. The word of God is your comfort. It's your, it's your anchor. It's what you're able to hold on to and be okay. So um, Paul, he understood the importance of having the word in this time, in this dark hour of his life. And I want you guys to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Open your Bibles to Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the Bible. We're going to read the whole thing. Just kidding. Just kidding. No, we're going to look at some of these verses in Psalm 119 written by David that tell us why we need the word of God in our dark hours, in our difficult times that we walk through. Whoops. I missed a slide. There you go. If you're taking notes, there's some more information. We've, we've covered it already. Uh, but the verses are at the bottom right there. We're going to look through Psalm 119. Uh, we'll start in verse 25 and we'll kind of go verse, uh, just looking at six of them. They're short, so don't worry. But in verse 25, David, he writes, My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 28, My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. This is my, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. And again, just write down the references for you to go back and look at. You don't need to write the whole verse. Verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I would have then perished in my affliction. Verse 107, I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. So like Paul, David had been through some very dark times. And David, through this psalm, teaches us that we need the word to comfort us in those times. Right? Yes. The word is your anchor when you're walking through difficulty. And like Paul... In our afflictions and trials, you guys, we need people, good people. We need our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we need God's word to comfort us. Verse 14 and 15. Here's an interesting part of this text. We're talking about Alexander the coppersmith. Anybody name Alexander in here? Everybody watch out for the Alexanders. I'm just kidding. No, but Paul talks about this guy, Alexander the coppersmith here. And Alexander the coppersmith was a bad, bad dude. 
bad dude. And basically, we don't know exactly what Alexander was doing to Paul other than that it says that he did Paul much harm. So this guy was a problem, a big problem. And this wasn't Paul's first time actually even mentioning this guy Alexander to Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, he mentions this guy Alexander. And he describes him as a blasphemer and someone that Paul actually had to kick out of the church. That's, that's pretty serious. If you get like, for example, if you get kicked out of this church, you must have done something bad, right? Uh, but Paul had to kick this guy Alexander out of the church. He says, get out of here. And now he brings Alexander back up and he says that he did him much harm. But I love what he says, that he says, may the Lord repay him according to his works. That's interesting. Because Paul, essentially what Paul is doing here is he's giving this whole situation to the Lord. And as a Christian, you need to do that too. In terms, you guys know the word vengeance means? Like vengeance is mine. You ever heard that? Or justice, right? When you make it right between, uh, you know, someone who wronged you by doing something back to them. That's actually an incorrect version of justice, but that's often how we think of it. But Paul, he committed the vengeance unto the Lord. And that's what God tells us to do when we're deeply wronged, is we're to commit the situation, the vengeance to the Lord, because the Bible says that vengeance is the Lord's and he will repay. Romans 12, verse 17 through 19 says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy 32, 35, the Lord says, he says, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Guys, when we try and take vengeance and justice into our own, into our own hands, you know what we do? We always take it too far. You probably know what I'm talking about. If you've gotten in like a prank war with someone, you always have to like prank them better than they prank you. And I actually have this, this real story uh, that happened in my life. When I was probably about junior high, um, <laughs> I went to my friend's birthday party, right? And it was this theme birthday party. It was like an army-themed birthday party. And it was cool. Um, when, we, when we walked in, there's probably about 20 boys, uh, all in junior high, all friends with my buddy Sean, uh, who was my next-door neighbor. Uh, but essentially, we get these inflatable toy guns. Like They're like, uh, like beach ball material, essentially, right? You, you blow them up. And we were just, you know, we're playing with them innocently, just playing army and stuff like, pew, 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 you know, or whatever. I might have been younger than junior high. I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. Um, so we're blowing up these, these things. We're, we're shooting at each other with fake bullets and whatnot. And then one of the guys has a brilliant idea. He's like, hey, why don't we start hitting each other with them? <laughs> and if you're a boy, you're like, yeah. <laughs> and so we're all like, yeah, let's do it. And so we have these inflatable guns, and it starts off really innocent. We're just running around trying to avoid getting hit by the other, the other dudes there. And obviously, it was in a sm pretty small backyard. There's not enough room to run around where you're not going to get hit. You're going to get hit eventually. And so everybody's hitting each other. And then it's like it starts to get a little bit more intense. Like you're getting hit, and you want to hit the person back a little bit harder. 
And then so it just keeps escalating and escalating. It's like, I'm like, vengeance is mine. Like, and I'm like, I'm attacking other kids and stuff. And I'm like trying to hit them harder than they hit me. And guys, it got so out of hand. Like we're straight up just like slinging these things at each other, hit them in the face. And even got to a point where these two boys, not me, let me clarify, not me, but they dropped their guns and they just started wailing on each other. It got gnarly. It was a big problem. Don't ask me where the parents were because I have no idea where the parents were. But it got out of hand, and the reason why is because like what we're talking about, when we try and execute vengeance, we always take it too far. Just like how when I got hit, I took it too far in hitting the guy who hit me back even harder. And then it got to a point where we're like throwing our shoulders out practically trying to hit each other. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's essentially why we need to commit vengeance unto the Lord, because he does it well. We don't do a good job. He does it well. Verse 16. Here it says that at my first defense, Paul writes, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. So while being in prison, Paul, he had time to think and reflect. And one of the things he's reflecting on is how everyone deserted him at his first defense. Have you ever heard the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going? Have you ever heard that? No. no? Okay. Well, you, you might hear it one day. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's a, that's a saying that you might hear. And I feel like Paul and his buddies had like two different interpretations of that saying, if the saying was around back then, which it probably wasn't. Uh, but Paul understood it as like, oh yeah, when the going gets tough, you stand firm in the face of difficulty. When persecution arises, you stand firm in the face of persecution. And I feel like Paul's friends, they're like, okay, yeah, the, the going's getting tough. I'm, I'm getting out of here, right? They had two different interpretations, which obviously Paul's friends uh, did not do the right thing in abandoning him. But Paul, I love this. Paul, he says, even though everybody's left me, Paul forgives them. He doesn't have any hard feelings towards them. He handles the situation in a very Christ-like way because when you remember when Jesus is on the cross, he says, literally, while he's being crucified, his arms are stretched wide. He's got nails going through his hands, nails going through his feet. And this is the love of God, you guys. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Every time I stop and think about that passage of scripture, I, it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around it because I'm not as merciful and loving as Jesus was. But he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing they don't know what they're doing against me. And no doubt in this moment, you guys, Paul is probably remembering how uh, it was told to him or written down that Jesus did that. But also, you guys know the, the death of Stephen, the first martyr? Uh, Stephen was a man of God shortly, he was, uh, shortly after the time of Jesus, and he was actually the first recorded uh, martyr, first person to die for their faith in Jesus. And Paul was actually a little bit younger at that time, and he's actually standing there. Imagine there's a big circle and Stephen's standing in the middle of it. He's standing there holding the jackets of the guys who are stoning Stephen. They're throwing these giant rocks at him and killing him. And Paul's holding the jackets, and he's, he's watching this go down. And you want to know what some of Stephen's final words were? Stephen, in that last moment of his life, while he's having these men throw these rocks at him and kill him, he says, Father, forgive them, 
or he said, that's what Jesus says. He says, Father, may this sin not be charged against them. And Paul watched that happen. He watched that whole thing go down. He watched Stephen die right in front of him. And hear Stephen say that. This was before Paul even knew Jesus. But no doubt that that experience, Stephen's words right there left an impression upon him because he uses almost the exact same words here regarding those who deserted him and left him on his own. He says, may it not be charged against them. Verse 17 and 18, you guys, says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So everybody left, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that the Gentiles and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So after having just written about how everybody left him, Paul says, you know what? The Lord stood with me. And that's really all that matters, right? When the Lord stands with us. Guys, in life, there's going to be, there are no doubt, you are going to go through situations where you feel like you're on your own. Maybe you're walking through one right now. Maybe you uh, have already been through one. And if you haven't, you're, I can promise you, you're going to go through it. Where you're like, I just feel like I'm on my own right now. Maybe you're the only Christian out of your friend group at school, and that's really hard on you. I know, I know what that could be like. The Lord stands with you. Maybe you're the only one on your baseball team that has any sort of desire to actually live for God. The Lord stands with you. Maybe you're the only one in your family that's actually trying to like love one another. Maybe your family is just not good. The Lord stands with you. You see, we need to take comfort in the fact that when we feel like we're on our own, are we really? Are we? No, we're not. The Lord stands with us. God has promised to, to us many times in his word, not just once, many times, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And I just want you to write down the references if you are taking notes. Write down these references to these verses because they're, you're going to need them one day. Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Joshua 1, 5 and 9. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, one of my personal favorites. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I love that one. And sorry, I forgot to click to the slide, but the references are up there now if you're writing them down. Uh, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says this to the disciples and he would say it to us as well. He says, and lo, I am always, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So not only did the Lord stand with Paul, you guys, not only did God stand with Paul when Paul was on his own, it also says that God gave him the strength that he needed to walk through the situation he was walking through. 
I don't know what you're walking through right now. Maybe you're walking through something where you feel like you're on your own. Maybe you feel like God has forsaken you. Don't believe it. God is with you. God is with you. He gives you the strength. Have you guys ever had your car battery die? You don't own a car, obviously, but your parents, like, have you ever had them come back to uh, the car and it just doesn't start because the battery's dead? Yeah, I've had it happen to me a couple of times. Um, the, the cool thing is about a dead battery is you call over a friend and you get jumper cables and you're able to transfer the energy from the working battery to the dead battery and get enough life out of the battery to get to uh, the mechanic or wherever you need to go to buy a new battery. And it's like that. It's like God, when we're feeling like we're just out of strength, when we're feeling like we're, we're just running on empty, we're on our own, God gives us the jumper cables to give us that strength to keep going. Paul mentions in verse 17 that the Lord delivered him from the mouth of the lion, which is, is a symbol of death. And God had spared Paul's, his, his life many times before this, and Paul had the confidence in God that he could do it again. But didn't I just tell you earlier that after this, Paul dies, Right? So Paul's crying out, to deliverance, crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Did God deliver Paul or not? The answer is yes. Paul was delivered to the fullest extent. You see, sometimes we cry out for God. Uh, let's say you have a sick family member, grandma, grandpa, uncle, whoever, in the hospital dying, and we're crying out for healing, right? And you're like, why are they not getting better? And you're praying for healing and they die. I've, I've had that happen to me before where I prayed for healing and the person I'm praying for, they end up passing away. Guess what happened? They were healed. They were as healed as you could possibly be. And so Paul's crying out for deliverance and he was delivered to the fullest extent. Verse 19 and 20, and we're, we're wrapping up here, but it just, these are just kind of like Paul's just like, Hey, say what's up to these people. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anusiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I've left in Miletus sick. So Paul's just like, hey, Timothy, tell these people I said what's up. Like, I care about these people a lot. Tell them I said hello. Um, and we, we learned from this that Paul was a man who, who valued his relationships. And the lesson to be taken away from that is you can't do this life on your own. You need to have those good relationships with people. Verse 21. Paul says, do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Putin's, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. And Paul, he wanted to see his friend Timothy, but he knows, he knows, Timothy, I don't have much time. Try and get here before winter because Paul didn't even know if he was going to make it till then. And then finally, Paul's final words written in the Bible, Paul's final words to Timothy. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit grace be with you. Amen. And here, like I said, these are his final words before he dies, final recorded words before he dies. Uh, and his prayer for Timothy would be the same prayer for us today, that the Lord would be with our spirit and grace be with us. So our takeaways uh, for today, the, the things that are to be learned from what we looked at today is number one, counting the cost of following Jesus. Following Jesus is, is, is hard but it's worth it. Remember, Demas, he didn't count the cost. Maybe, maybe the Lord 
redeemed Demas. I would, I would bet that he did. He redeemed uh, Demas's mistake, but we need to count the cost of following Jesus. And like God restored Paul and Mark's relationship, he can restore any relationship if two people are humble enough to seek that restoration. Restoration, you guys, is a beautiful thing. If you're living in a broken relationship with a friend or family member, you got to make that right. The Lord wants you to make it right. And worship team, you guys can come on out. A um, couple more things, you guys, is that God, he calls various people to various places. Guys, don't, don't let me lose you. It's just the last like minute or so. God, he calls various people to various places. Wherever you're at, God has called you there. He hasn't called me there. He hasn't called the person next to you there. He's called you there. You're to be the light to those people in your life. You're to be the light to your family. You're to be the light to your friends. He calls various people to various places for one purpose. And that purpose is to glorify him. And then that funny story I, I mentioned about my friends and how we were exercising vengeance but not doing it right because we were taking it too far. Vengeance is the Lord's, you guys. When we're deeply wronged, we give that to the Lord and he deals with it. And that's the best way to handle it. We'll mess it up if we try and do it. We really will. And because God, God is, the Bible says God is just. He is perfectly just. And finally, when all have abandoned us, you guys, and we feel like we're alone, we're not. God is with us to strengthen us, to deliver us, and preserve us. He doesn't just leave us on our own. He's with us through it. All right, let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, Lord, and we thank you, God, that you have given us, Lord, these accounts, these stories in your word, Lord, for our learning, God. And I pray that we would walk out of here today, Lord. Uh, if we're in a situation of a broken relationship, Lord, may we restore that relationship. May we look to you to restore it ultimately, but God, may we seek that restoration like Paul and Mark had that beautiful restoration in their relationship, Lord God. May we have that in ours as well, if that applies to us today. And God, we also, we also pray that, Lord, that when, when we are feeling like you are not with us, Lord, that you would just give us that comfort, Lord, that you would give us the, the peace to know that you are with us, Lord. You are with us to strengthen, to deliver, and to preserve us. So God, may we walk out of here in your power, and God, may we worship you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.